Hello and welcome to another exciting edition of Heavy Meta. I am, as always, one of your hosts, Bryce Kundick, and I'm joined with... Kelly Boyden. And today we are joined with the illustrious... Professor Jim Melcher. Jim, thank you so much for coming on the show. show You're very us. welcome. Is this where I need to say the legal disclaimer that my views may or may not be those of the University of Maine system, the University of Maine at Farmington, or any other sensible people? That sounds like a good idea. Never we hurts. want we want uh, James Page to be all happy. So, Great. You know, well, I speak only for myself. So <laughs> and tell, not even all that well. Tell us a bit about who who are you and what do you do here at UMF. Wow. Okay, not the existential sense. Yes. Yeah. No, 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 who are who are any of us? More of the vocation. Um, I have been teaching at UMF since 1999. I took the place of a man named Jack Quinn, who had taught here for many, many years. It took me about a decade to be somebody other than you're the guy who produced Jack Quinn, aren't you? Uh, I do most of the American government courses here. I teach American government every semester. I teach a very wide range of courses, including American political thought, uh, the practical politics class I'm teaching right now, where students go work in campaigns. Uh, presidency in Congress, uh, public policy, state and main public opinion, interest groups and parties, com law, civil liberties, I uh, do a wide range of those things. I'm the UMF contact for the Maine Public Policy Scholars Program, which is a wonderful program for students I'd be happy to talk about. I am the volunteer pre-law advisor. Um, I hold many, many hats here at the university. I have a big rack for all the hats. Yeah, it sounds wow. like it. It's how you do at a small public liberal arts college. Is... We're a school with three political scientists, and uh, you kind of wind up being more of a generalist. One of the things I like about working here is if I was teaching at a Big Ten school, and I'm a graduate of two Big Ten schools, uh, undergraduate at Wisconsin and graduate school at Minnesota, if you were teaching a political science department at a place like that, you would be very specialized. You'd be only studying Congress, or you'd only be studying Bulgarian politics. or And there's a place for that, and that's wonderful. But a lot of what I like doing is doing research on things that are broader, more of interest to the general public, not as likely to be nationally renowned, but having my fingers in a lot of different pies is helpful, and I enjoy that a lot more than arguing about other people's articles from 40 years ago. I'd much rather talk about the broader level. It's of more interest to the public. Huh. And you do the, the yearly Supreme Court Day, uh, which I've always enjoyed. Well, thank although, you. Although I missed it this year. It's was... Well, it's recorded, so I can completely call your bluff. Oh, well, I didn't uh, realize that. It's on that. YouTube. I have only had three likes on it thus far. Well, I always think when somebody says, oh, is that recorded? It's kind of like, because that gives me permission <laughs> to do something more interesting. Um, let me talk about that briefly. Um, I have given a talk called the Supreme Court Preview and Review every September or October in observance of Constitution Day. Every university in the United States has to do something. Uh, that receives money from the federal government, has to do something in order to keep their money uh, that is educational concerning the Constitution. And what could be better than talking about how the Supreme Court has been interpreting the Constitution? So I start out with five uh, cases from the previous term, five cases from the upcoming term. This year we talked about what does it mean that Anthony Kennedy has stepped down from the court. At the time I recorded it, we didn't know uh, whether or not uh, Judge Kavanaugh was going to be confirmed to the Supreme Court, so I kind of left that... Uh, a little bit up in the air, but I've enjoyed doing that. Um, I'd say it's one of the things I enjoy the most uh, doing here. It draws a lot of people from elsewhere. The, fa the mother of one of my alumni has now gotten off work three years in a row to drive down, and, and not a short drive, to come watch that every year. And I get a lot of comments on it. And uh, this year it's on YouTube, so if you look for 
uh, Jim Melcher Supreme Court Preview and Review 12th Annual. Uh, you'll be able to find it. But I'd like to think it's become a UMF tradition. Yeah, I would I would say it has. If, if it's gotten to the point that I noticed it and I started going to it, I mean, you know. Yeah, but you're the information yeah. sciences people. Right, yeah. right. You have a catalog, encyclopedic knowledge. So you are also kind of the, the go-to guy for other call-in shows. I, I heard you on Maine Public Radio last week, maybe week before. Oh, you must have been walking down the hall. No, I, just I heard you loud. in my car. Oh, um, man. Wow, I was louder than I thought. And you were talking about... Uh, how independents are not really all that independent. Correct. And I thought that, that was, was on really the report hosted by Mel Leary. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a pretty standard. That's not a particularly original insight on my part. Um, political scientists have known for years that self-identifiers as independents tend to have very predictable voting behavior. What distinguishes them is they tend to have an antipathy toward parties. They see parties as a bad thing. They see parties as a source of bad information. And sometimes they're ticket splitters. Sometimes they may be, well, I, I like the national Democrats better than the Republicans, but I like my local Republicans better, or vice versa. Um, but independent, and independent for some people is a residual category. I don't know. Independent? Yeah. You know, it can be kind of like picking vanillas and ice creams. Well, what's your favorite ice cream flavor? And you can't. No, it's not to say there aren't independents that aren't very thoughtful, that aren't very analytical. But people sometimes, I think, put down party identification too much. We know from years of study that people with a strong party identification for whatever party, Democratic, Republican, Green, Libertarian, Constitution Party, are on average more knowledgeable about politics than people who call themselves independents. And again, we know from statistics that doesn't mean everyone in one knows more than everyone in the other. But I think principal partisanship sometimes gets a worse name than it deserves. But that fits into a lot of my ideology of, of teaching. I grew up in Wisconsin. I was the son of a state employee, and being in Madison, the influence of the university and Robert LaFollette and all is very strong. There's a very powerful idea, probably the most powerful idea associated with the University of Wisconsin is an idea called the Wisconsin Idea. And it's hard to describe to somebody not from, people in Wisconsin kind of intuitively know what it means. But the usual way it's described is the boundaries of the university should be the boundaries of the state that you should be educating beyond your classroom. Mm. Uh, this is where university extension programs, like the ones you see helping farmers, yes. that comes out of this. Some of the earliest public radio comes out of the University of Wisconsin, WHA, uh, shortly after World War I. And I really internalized a lot of that in the sense that I want to do research and talk and be somebody who can help explain, help educate mm -hmm. in a state where the system is so open to participation, no matter what your ideology is. I want to help that. So I do a lot of media interviews. Mm -hmm. um, this year has been particularly heavy because of our, um, <laughs> largely because of ranked choice voting. Oh, um, ranked choice voting, when it made the ballot, was probably the least interesting to Maine voters. It was going up against marijuana and Medicaid expansion. But to political scientists observers around the world, they were really excited because, wow, this is the first time a whole state could talk. Whether or not you think it's a good idea, it attracted a lot of attention yeah. as a potential experiment. Uh, you, know, but, you know, the whole idea of states as, uh, as experiments. And so I've done interviews in the last year with, let's see, Mother Jones, The Atlantic, Politico, Al Jazeera America. I just did one with... Uh, a woman who works for the uh, NBC owned and operated stations like WMAQ and WNBC, 
for their websites. I talk to somebody who's working on a book on the current congressional campaign. And I see that as part of my job. Mm-hmm. Um, I see it that I may not be the most famous political scientist in Maine. I'm, I'm certainly not one of the most, you know, I see Sarah Binder that I went to graduate school with on CNN all the time because she's the top expert in the nation on filibusters. Well, I, you know, I, I kind of do my homely little thing and I try and do research and try and explain things in terms people understand. And once people hear you like, oh, who else have they called? Oh, they called Melcher. Let's call, call him up. It's not like there's been some sort of independent analysis. Like, Who's got the most hits? Professor on Maine. Oh, Melcher. Let's give him a try. And I like to think that it's because I talk about things in language people can understand. I try not to be too high. I'm not smart enough to be that high foot. I'm just a simple hired handle state of Maine, ma'am. I, I'll do my best to, to work with the media as best as I can. But I try and be very fair. And the other piece of it is I feel that a lot of my job is to be as analytical and fair as I can, no matter how I'm feeling about a particular subject. Um, I was on statewide radio once when... Um, I wasn't necessarily entirely happy with the election results, but it wasn't my job to go on and say, you know, you what, what was it, the, Ad, the uh, Adelaide Stevenson line, the people have spoken, the bastards. You know, I wasn't going to go do <laughs> after he had lost the second time to Eisenhower. My job is to be as analytical and fair as I can be. And if people ask for my individual opinion, I will give it to them. But I feel as a social scientist, it's my job to try and be fair um, I had a professor as an undergraduate who said, in order to pass this class, you'll have to agree with my Trotskyite communist view of history. And, all right, well, you know, <laughs> it's all right if somebody wants to teach that way. But it's not okay to say, you have to follow what I'm doing. We want to train people to think for themselves. Mm-hmm. We want people to be able to rely on the information people are giving. And there's a place for the public intellectual saying, you know, I'm known for saying these things. My job, as I see it, is more to be a neutral explainer, and I like to think that I've been been helpful to people about that. So yes, I was just on main calling, uh, did a half hour. I've done a number of segments on main calling. I was on Wisconsin Public Radio a number of years ago. I've been on the uh, talk show that um, Hannah Pingree and Roger Cates do call uh, that uh, is broadcast statewide. So yeah, I've been on. A lot of things. Now, when I was on the show in Wisconsin, the woman that was hosting the show, Kathleen Dunn, kept referring to us as uh, James Melcher from the University of Maine at Farmingham. <laughs> and I kept I kept trying to be, it's how I do all the things. I try yeah. to be gentle. Well, my students at Farmington, uh, ellipsis, mm-hmm. dot, dot, dot. Well, that's what they say up here in Farmington. Didn't catch the beat. So sometimes you try and drop the hints and they just don't do. But um, I've enjoyed working with the media. Sometimes it gets a little overwhelming, but um, I see it as part of my job. And and I like to think that I'm getting Farmington's name out there. Look, we're a little school, way off the beaten path. It's not like we're Harvard. And, And I like to think it's something I can do to help the university and the people of the state. So when you're approaching uh, politics and news and how how do you where do you go for your research? I mean, in, t- in today's hyper partisan, there's like you know, I mean, sort basically from an, I mean, yes, I have my own personal views on politics, of course, believe you me. Um, but looking at it from a librarian's point of view, you can pretty much any point any opinion you want to confirm, you can go out there and find an article that confirms it for you and be like, yep, I was right, and now I don't have to listen to all these well, other. And articles. we know that's we in political science we've known for years that people follow the old Mark Twain line about the man who uh, 
use facts like a drunk uses a lamppost more for support than for illumination. And we know that in an increasingly segmented news environment, people do that. There's a couple things I do. One, I try and stay, you know, obviously being a generalist, I can't be up on everything in political science, but that's something I'm spending time reading that other people won't. I get information from conferences. So I try and consume those things. I subscribe to multiple daily newspapers and try and read from a wide range of things. There are some sources that are really good for different. Christian Science Monitor is an outstanding source for news on an international level. But honestly, part of it, and this will be very counterintuitive for you, part of it is having a diverse group of people I know on Facebook that are very interested mm -hmm. in things. That if I'm reading, you know, some people only will post things that follow their point of view. And I've said to people many times, if everybody voted for president, the same candidate you did, you need more friends. And I know people that voted all over the spectrum on those things. And honestly, a lot of what I wind up reading on Facebook, other than the entertaining and funny memes, are, you know, good articles that people will have. And I might not agree with it, but I'm like, well, that's an interesting take on that. I hadn't thought of that. But I think you have to make a conscious effort. And when I was growing up, People ride very much on their local newspaper and on um, the national nightly newscast. And I still watch those. I don't think a lot of my students do, but, um, but back in those days, there really was a consensus about what things were going to talk about. And now it's almost as though people don't entirely believe each other's facts. And while in some ways it's a wonderful, wonderful banquet, it's as though people are only eating the little cubes of cheese or only eating the grapes. So they've got all this stuff they can pick from. And they don't. And I try and have uh, as wide a range of those things as I can and um, to listen to what other people have to say. So do you mix it up some? Do you, list, do you watch ABC one night, NBC another, Fox News one time, CNN another, MSNBC, just yeah. sort of like that? Or More with the newspapers, but yes, I do. I try right. and make sure I try and watch the different local news stations have a different right. take. Uh, Channel 13 is owned by Sinclair, which has its own take on some things. So yes, I do try and mix those up, but I'd say more in the newspapers that I read. But um, I think it comes organically from just knowing a lot of people that are trying to air a lot of different uh, different things out. So if you were, if someone was going to be like, okay, I want to be well informed too, give me top five newspapers I should read each day. Okay, part of the problem with that is ten years ago you could read the top five. Papers. Oh right. And now you run into a paywall very, very quickly. Yeah. I just ran into one myself. I love the Washington Post. I'm a big fan of the Washington Post. I think they're a little less full of themselves than a certain other gray lady newspaper <laughs> we could mention. Um, and I was getting it for free, part of my subscription to the Kennebec Journal, and suddenly it ended. Mm. And it's awful, like, wait a minute, you know, I want my fix. I'm like, you know, some mouse clicking on the button <laughs> for, the, for the sugar. Up. You know, I can't have those things. I certainly recommend them. I think I think the Christian Science Monitor is highly underrated. I think is useful. One place I go for views that are a little out of the box from America is a wonderful website called the American Conservative that looks at a lot of issues from kind of a European type conservatism, not mm. necessarily classical liberal, but they often have a very fascinating take on things that I sometimes violently disagree with and sometimes think is absolutely wonderful, and I enjoy those. But there's no substitute for local media. You know, I, re I subscribe to the Kennebec Journal. I read it every day. That gets me the Portland Press-Herald, the rest of those. I try and read the Boston Globe regularly. And then I read a lot of stuff from back, you know, where I'm from. I read the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel regularly, the Wisconsin State Journal, Minneapolis Star Tribune. 
Um, I try and get as big of a diet as the stuff I could. And a lot of it grew up from having a father who would travel and bring back his newspapers that I enjoyed having. Oh, wow, look, this is the Washington Post, or this is the Philadelphia Inquirer, or the Chicago Tribune. That I enjoyed it, and not just because they had better comics than our local <laughs> paper did. I really dove in and enjoyed that. But, you know, you can pick five things that are different, but try not to have ones that all have the same focus. Right. You know, the Kennebec Journal is a wonderful paper for all the things locally. It won't have deep dives into what's going on in Hungary. So I think it's not even as much about an ideological mix as a level mix. Hmm. Uh, because I think that's where things have really gotten segmented. If you look at a paper like the Boston Globe, they used to have a lot more foreign journalists of their own. And as the print media in particular have had to make a lot of cuts, they're not as able to do that anymore as other paper papers are, but they're very good about regional New England news in a way nobody else in New England is. So I would say that's the most critical piece. Mm. I would say I get a lot of the ideological diversity, frankly, from Facebook. Mm. Interesting. You must have smarter friends than I do. <laughs> <laughs> My friends are smart. Well, you know, it's like Garrison Keillor would say about Minnesota. They're all above average. Good looking. And it's been a quiet week in my college town. Alvin Augusta and every week is a quiet week there. Well, I mean, it's part of the fun thing about keeping in touch with your alumni. And one of the things I like to think that my students think of me is I'm an honest broker. You know, sooner or later, you kind of figure out where I am ideologically. But I try very hard to make sure they don't feel like I felt like in that mm. history class, that they feel like they can say what I want. And so I have a built-in kitchen cabinet of people that the average person would not have. Mm. That like, okay, Lance Harville was one of my alumni. He's a pretty mm. conservative Republican. He ran for office the first time because he took my practical politics class and got involved in it. Mm -hmm. And then I have another student who graduated recently who is a self-described anarchist hyphen socialist. Which is an interesting combination. Absolutely. And he has a different take than these other people do. But I mandate when people are talking on my wall, I want to have more civility. And they're good about that for the mm. most part. What I think a problem is with the electronic media is so much of it is anonymous. People right. I find it. Not even the recent controversy about trolls, yeah. about Russian bots and the rest of that. But just being able to hide behind a name, there's a lot of anger mm -hmm. that is... To my mind, unfortunate, because I look at it much like I look at bullying, that it scares people away from wherever it is the other people want to go. And they'll say, well, I don't want to get into that. People are just too, too mean. And I try to go out of my way to censor my own side of things. We're out of time. Um, <laughs> Uh, I felt like I was on a quiz show. I heard the buzzer, <laughs> buzzer go off, and I'm, I'm sorry, you're out of time. Um, yeah, so, the, the yeah. So, um, Jim, it's been interesting. No, <laughs> no, we're not done. No, we're, 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 not, we're not done with you we're yet, you. <laughs> Um, no, but now I've forgotten what I was going to say. Welcome um, to my world. Let me yeah. ask you about your students. Oh, yeah, love them. Do you think Good that answer. they are more engaged politically than students you may have had in past election cycles, or? I'd are they say, fired up? Are they apathetic? Where are they? Well, I mean, they all vary. You know, when you're teaching a survey course, mm -hmm. you have a lot of people who are there because somebody told them, you need a social science class. Right. 
But then I have people who are very passionately involved. And I think the ones that get the most passionately involved uh, that I get more of this semester is when I'm teaching practical politics. Mm -hmm. And to explain what practical politics is, as I said, it's a class I inherited from Jack Quinn, and he wanted students getting involved in practical experience in politics. So uh, they have some time off to go work in any campaign of their choice. They are not assigned a campaign. They could run for office themselves if they wanted. Mm -hmm. So I have students working for local Republicans. I have students working for local Democrats. I have students working on Senate campaigns. I have a student working with the League of Women Voters, and they have a channel to be involved. I wouldn't say it's as though every student I have feels the need to march out and be an activist as much as I might like them to be. And that's the message I try and convey is I don't care what side of this you take, I just want you to get off the couch. But in that particular class, there's something about having a particular person to work with that I think really facilitates it. But it ups and flows. Mm -hmm. I was surprised how little activism there was two years ago. Yeah. If you think of how big an election that was, and I had an awful lot of really talented students back then, but I think people are more engaged now than they were two years ago. I, I think that there's a lot of people that have seen things that have happened in the last two years and want to push back on it. I've seen some that are very happy with it and want to keep moving in that direction. But I think as politics has gotten more polarized over the last two years, I'd say there's a little more. But I can't tell if it's a permanent change or it's just sort of the natural ebb and flow okay. of... But any presidential election year and any congressional or gubernatorial election year, you just get more than, than the in-between. Um, I got motivated by being interested in political science initially by elections, and I was a five-year-old boy, and I can talk about that story later. It's one of my favorite stories. But um, I think elections have a way of drawing people out in a way that other things don't always do. Hmm. Since, I've, since I have you here, one of my, I want to know, one of my favorite sites that I go to is 538. And I, That's I wonder, a great site. Okay, because I, I wanted your input and on it. And Nate just, Silver and all the right. rest of that. Well, you know, an awful, awful lot of it is focused on polling. Yep. And polling in and of itself, polling is kind of fun, but it does follow a political scientist will call it the horse race aspect of things. And you look a lot, because a lot of that, they're, they're trying to be predictive. They're trying mm -hmm. to see what's going to come. But they also have, you know, some good long-form stories and the rest of that. Well, I think they can be very, very helpful. And they're not really explicitly oriented toward pushing a particular ideology. I think it's a very, very useful site for trying to figure out some of those things. And they increasingly do have some more of that additional content. I'd say it's a good choice. Yeah, I just, I remember um, both in the uh, Romney-Obama election uh, and then the Trump uh, Clinton, election. Clinton election just barely. Both times, it was interesting because they were saying something that was maybe a bit different than other sites were saying, and I found their analysis to be more spot on. And they tend to have a more scientific approach of things, like let's test this proposition in a quantitative manner. And in that sense, is more like political science than, well, I don't like this person because he or she is ugly. <laughs> so, I mean, I think they try very hard to be analytical. I don't always agree with the assumptions thing. I mean... Anything where you're trying to be quantitative is only as good as whatever assumptions you're right. putting in. And I sometimes look at their assumptions and I'm like, well, I don't know. I think that you're putting a little too much on this thing or that thing. I mean, it's garbage in, garbage out like right. anybody else. But I appreciate how they try to be analytical and try and bring some rigor to bear because that's really a lot of what political science tries to do in looking at something like American politics. And they at least try and be upfront with the assumptions they're making. So you can look at it and be like, oh, well... I can agree with this because of the, you know you can you can pick it apart a bit better than 
than some of the Right, other right. Sites. They can't. I mean, because another site might be trying to rely on what its donors want or what its subscribers want. You know, the nation has things it's going to say that fit what their subscriber base says. Even a think tank like Cato, well, all right, they're going to be conservatively or consistently libertarian because that's their, their mindset. And I don't see that kind of mindset dictating what they do. So, yeah, I think they're very useful. Well, good. Now I can feel even better about yeah. myself. Aren't you smart? Yeah, aren't I smart? I, I, you know, can't always be empowering for people, especially at midterm time, but, you know, I do what I, I'll do what I can. So, uh, the Kavanaugh hearings and appointment, uh, not, without getting into um, the ultimate outcome, but I guess I guess my question would be, what what's a political scientist's take on all of that? Part of the take is to look and ask where this all came from. And some of this really goes back to the 1980s, that we had for years a process that was relatively not polarized, with some exceptions. Certainly some of Nixon's appointments in the 70s were designed to be very explicitly political. But, you know, generally speaking, there wasn't as much fire. This A lot of this takes back to the Robert Bork hearings of the late uh, 1980s. And it's kind of a mixed bag. You know, political scientists want to look at inputs into the system. So we look at, well, interest groups are engaged. Linkage groups are engaged. Groups are raising money uh, on both sides. Groups are mobilizing their people. And the normal political science answer to that is, that's fantastic. Look at these linkage institutions plugging people in. The problem is a lot of the linkage institutions are so ideologically rigid that it gets to be very difficult to get people to compromise in a system that is built on compromise. This is not a parliamentary system where the majority party says what it's going to do and the loyal opposition says, oh, top, top, and, <laughs> you know, bangs there. This is supposed to work differently, and it reflects something we, the students of Congress have seen for some time, that parties become more polarized, that there is less middle ground, and that's something political scientists have wanted for years. You go back to the 50s, oh, I wish we could be more like British parties, oh, look, they say what they want, and they go do it. Well, we've kind of got that world now, and I'm not sure it's better, because huh. I think there's so much bitterness and so much... So I think of it partly in terms of linkage institutions like parties, interest groups. I think of it partly in terms of the nature of parties. I think of it partly as Congress. I think of it partly as the nature of the presidency and presidential appointments. But um, I don't think the model for these appointments works the way it did 30 years ago. Uh, I think that it is much more conflictual. And I think there are pluses and minuses to that, but I think it puts a lot of stress on the system to have mm. these kinds of things because so many people now seem to say, I'm not going to accept any knowledge from the other side. I'm, I'm just not going to accept that. My mind's made up. Don't confuse me with the facts. And honestly, I think that's a province of both the left and the right mm -hmm. uh, on some of these things. I don't care. And it was, it was startling seeing how many Republicans said, well, even if, Robert, if Kavanaugh did all the things he said he did, I don't care. And you know, partisanship is good. Partisanship is good when it's a set of principles that are about a consistent ideology about making the country better, making the world better. I think it can become toxic when it's more about how much you hate the other party. And one of the things that I see in the Kavanaugh hearings is something political scientists have been seeing more of, we call toxic partisanship, where oftentimes people are less motivated by their positive vision of what their party is for or what their position is for, more about how much they hate the other guys. And 
I think that's poisonous in a system that's based, and I'm not trying to be critical of any one particular person or any of the rest, but there's a general tendency to look at the other side as the enemy. And one reason I try to have friends that are in diverse positions is so I don't look at it in that way that's so, you know, uh, West Side Story, the sharks versus the jets. And and sometimes it seems as ideological as that, or should I say unideological like that. So I think there's a lot of different lenses a political scientist can, excuse me, look at this at. And obviously there's going to be a lot of change on a number of issues on the court. I do think liberals overstated how liberal Kennedy was. And I tried to make that point in the preview and review that I know you're going to run right out and watch on YouTube, uh, available <laughs> on a computer near you. One of the points I made was liberals kind of react, oh, Kennedy was such a good liberal. Well, not necessarily. On a lot of social issues, he was. On LGBT rights, he absolutely was. But he voted for Citizens United. He mm. voted in general very much in favor of business. Uh, he was quite conservative on things. He was appointed by Ronald Reagan. This was not Ruth Bader Ginsburg or Thurgood Marshall we're talking about. And I think there was so much focus on one or two issues, particular abortion, that I think people misread Kennedy and thought this was a... It's a big change, no question about it. But it's not as big a change as I think some people thought it would be. Mm. I think some of the biggest change is just how divisive this was. And we've had divisive before, but I think this was on another level, um, maybe not seen since the Bork hearings. Hmm. So is there a way back from this toxic partisanship? Is there, is, there, is there a light at the end of the tunnel? I mean, historically speaking, have we ever been this divided? And, and was there... Of course we have. A healing that took place? Or? Of course we have. Uh, we had a civil war where people were shooting at each other. We had 1968 where people were carrying flags in the streets supporting forces that the United States Army was fighting against. I don't think we're as divided as we were in 1968. I don't think we're as divided as we were at the time of the Civil War or the Revolutionary War. I think there's a lot about the country that's strong enough to survive. I think a lot of it goes to leadership. I think words matter, and I think the words people use matter, and facts matter, and the ability to accept facts matter. I think a lot of this comes from the top. Right. And there are leaders who model that type of thing well, and there are those who don't. I don't think we'll ever get back to any kind of golden era of... You know, people sometimes look at the 50s and early 60s that way. But even then, you had conflicts over civil rights. Absolutely. You had conflicts over a lot of things. I mean, there's always been conflict. It's that anger mm. that I think is really more of an issue. And it seems to be rewarded in a lot of ways. I think a lot of interest groups make their money off being angry. Mm -hmm. The other side is a horrible threat. Yeah. Give us money to save us from filling name of your enemy here. Right on abortion or the environment or right. you name whatever issue. Yeah, I mean, there's any number of issues where, and to my opinion, I'm going to say something controversial, I think the weakening of parties in some ways and the strengthening of interest groups has really exacerbated this because parties, by definition, have to have a basket of issues. Right. Whereas if you care about the environment or you care about guns or you care about abortion, whatever side of those issues you're on, that's your only thing, and you're a lot less likely to bargain and make a deal because you think, if I give in on this, it's a sign of weakness. Right. 
Um, and so I'm not totally sure the growth of the power of interest groups over the last 40 years is an unmixed blessing, particularly when they have as much access to money as they do, I think is an issue. And there's always money in politics. People sometimes overassume the problems with it. Um, so can we get back? I think the edges can be sanded down some, uh, depending on who's in leadership at, at, at lots of levels. But I think some of that is never going to come. You'll never have a system free of conflict. And you want some conflict. You want, but the, I think what I sense is a lot of times people are more concerned with winning than thinking about what's good for the country. Or can only define what is good for the country in terms of their particular stance on things. Mm. That there's a lack of goodwill. And I think to some extent some political leaders and various uh, ideologies have exploited that because people like get get excited about that. I'm fighting against the bad guys. I'm, you know, I mean, I'm trying very hard not to label this on specific people, but you can find examples in lots of different uh, ideological segments. And I think that's where a lot of this comes from. Uh, I think a lot of this is people following those things. People, you know, model themselves on other people's behavior to some extent. And I think there's been some modeling behavior that. I think is a real problem. I agree. Well, we are out of time. No. Yes. Time, but this was a, a great See, discussion. don't you like record like three hours and then distill it down to the five seconds you want to use? <laughs> that takes way too so much all time. all the other reporters do it. No, no. Here at Heavy Metal, we just... Don't you want to be like we, the we stop? Talk. We don't edit. We stop and stick it all up. Just... Well, I would have yammered a little. I would have stayed on task a little better if I'd known you were going to cut me off. That's, well, we do might... you have enough usable material? Or is the whole this thing all is usable. Stuff? No, this is great. It's all good stuff. Thank you so much for, for joining us. My uh, pleasure. You know, um, learned a lot. It probably be Make a regular Monday gig if you want. It'd be fun to have you back on. Yes. Mondays um, with the Meltran. <laughs> Sounds great. Hello, you're on the Jim Meltran <laughs> Show. Long time listener, first time caller, I'm a big fan. <laughs> You've got it all. <laughs> you could even just... And, so you know, we just have to press play and let you go. That's it. I mean, just... Well, you know, I, I talk for a living. Yes, you and, do. You know, you do it well. one thing that's fun, well, thank you. One thing that's nice about being at a university with people who are in schools loaded with great teachers and... You can find yourself engaged with a lot of good conversations, and the students can get to know you. Yeah. And I think a lot of the, the best thing about the job is seeing what the students do later. Mm. And being in touch with that diverse range of people is a lot of what makes the job fun. There's nothing better about this job than seeing what the students go on and do. Yay, and our students, students have done and done a lot of stuff. This message brought to you by the UMG Maine Farmington Alumni Association. <laughs> Stay in touch with the school. Be a loyal beaver. Be a happy beaver. Thanks, Jim. Okay, goodbye. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha.